Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And every team sport claims to be the ultimate team sport, but which team sport is actually the ultimate team sport? Interesting. Um, and this, I guess, is I. That's interesting. My first thought is that there's sports that have ultimate in the name, but I don't. I guess ultimate frisbee is the only one that's a team sport that has ultimate in the in the name that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I can't think of any. That is what it's called, right? Ultimate Frisbee? Yeah. I think it's actually just called Ultimate. Yeah, they do shorten it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's the easy answer. I, that wouldn't be my answer, but I guess that's the easy answer. What is your answer then? Or do you want me to go first? I thought a lot um, about this. Okay, I'm sure I'm, well, I'm sure you did. You, you were really excited about it last week. I was. I was. Um, ultimate team sport. I don't know. I guess... If I'm thinking about what would make a team sport the most ultimate, it would it would be like one person can't carry the team. You know what I mean? Like in basketball, if you have one really, really good player, then sometimes they can just dominate. Um, whereas in football, like one player doesn't make as big of a difference, typically, unless it's a quarterback. Um, so that's kind of maybe where I would go. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I would say football. That's probably biased. That's my answer for now. I want to hear what, what you have in your rationale. So I actually went the opposite way of you. So you're talking about trying to find, you know, if the sport can be dominated by one individual, probably doesn't make it a very big like team sport thing. I was trying to think of the sports where one, where can one person completely screw it up for you and cost the entire team um, some sort of uh, like cost them the entire event. So my choice was to go with either um, endurance race car driving, or I actually did some research and apparently there is pairs that play uh, billiards or pool. So my thought was in the racing, one driver can make a mistake, wreck the car, and you are completely done for the race. Or in pairs billiards, you can sink the eight ball and instantly cause your team to lose. So to me, those are the ultimate team sports because at any moment, any given action you do could potentially cost your entire team the game. So that was the reason I went with with those two. And I did give it a little bit of, well, probably too much thought, but that was my, my rationale behind picking one of those two sports. Hmm. Interesting. So basically no room for error is you know, like you're fully 100% dependent upon, like you can't, you cannot potentially, you cannot cover your teammates mistake at all. Yeah. So like if we're playing, billiards together on a team i have to just hope that you don't sink the eight ball and vice versa you have to hope that i don't sink the eight ball because you could be sinking every one of the pool balls in order boom 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 and then it's my turn to go we could be well in the lead and then i sink the eight ball and we instantly lose and i've just cost our team the game 
And same thing with the race car driving. You could send out driver number one and they could be lapping cars. They could be flying around. You put in driver number two and they total the car. You're out of the race. Mm -hmm. So no matter how well you're doing, no matter what lead you have, you can instantly be removed from the competition. And so that's why to me, those are maybe examples of the ultimate team game. I mean, I guess I feel like maybe you could say that about anything though. Like it's, I guess it's most obvious in things like that, like any other relay race, you could say that about like, if if you're talking about the four by one and I guess it wouldn't be one mistake necessarily in other sports where as, as what you're talking about with this one, like if, if you sink the eight ball, that's like one, like the cue slips a little bit and you sink the eight ball and you lose versus one player in other sports could have that much power if, but it would take them a lot of, a lot of mistakes to force the team to lose. You know what I mean? Like you'd have to, as a quarterback, you throw a bunch of interceptions have the same level of impact versus just like one. And well, I mean, one interception could potentially, um, but I mean, yeah, there's so I mean, many that's more events. Concept. There's so many more events in that. Like the the time frame is the way that I looked at it. That, like, sure, you could put losing a soccer game on the player who had to take the final penalty kick, but mm-hmm. there was still 120 minutes of football or soccer, depending on where you are in the world. There was still 90 minutes of regular time and 30 minutes of overtime, and four other penalty kicks before that that led to the moment you had to take mm-hmm. that final penalty kick. So that one individual mm-hmm. action was the last play of the game that you ended up losing, but it's not actually the play that cost you the game. And you could make a huge blunder if I'm sticking with soccer or football's mm-hmm. example in the opening 30 seconds of the game, you could score an own goal on yourself. You've disadvantaged your team. You're down one, nothing, but you still have, the rest of the game to, to climb back into it and score goals and get your team back into it is where like what I'm talking about here are game ending mistakes. I sink the eight ball for us in billiards. That's it. We don't get a second chance. That's like, it, it's a fatal mistake in terms of playing the game. So that's why to me, those are the two that I mm-hmm. thought of that are team sports. Mm-hmm. Perhaps there's other sports out there with the same concept where a certain mistake leads to an instant game over and elimination. Right. Yeah. Complete disqualification. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Um, other than like powerlifting, I was just at my first powerlifting meet in like two years uh, this past weekend, which was exciting. Um, and one lifter who I wasn't, I wasn't handling this person, but um this person was friends with the person that was handling. He missed all three bench attempts. And then you cannot, you can't go on to deadlift. You cannot register total. It doesn't matter if you squatted like 3 million pounds, you can't win the meet because you didn't register a total. So it's the same kind of idea where one, I mean, it's three mistakes, technically three missed lifts in, yeah. in one event. Um, but you're, fully disqualified it's not a team though but that's uh it'd be like that similar similar idea um 
Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of any other team sports like that. Um, I do like that that idea though, where like you're so fully dependent upon your teammate because at any moment, like the yeah, you could lose with with you having no hope of redeeming your team. So, yeah, I'm on board with that. I might go with the race car driving because the speed uh, and the danger element makes it a little bit more ultimate in another fashion. There's, there's more the, risk in race car driving than billiards. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know how I ended up thinking about this. Um, it was pro- – oh, no, you know what it was? This was actually a while ago when I was watching um, – I was watching an endurance race and the team way out in the lead buddy took over the car and just like wiped it. And so then the other three drivers in the garage that had finished driving, you're like, oh, like, great. Mm. We did our job. We put the car in first place. We were going to win. And mm-hmm. like they're sitting in the garage, just watching the car drive around. You're completely helpless. And buddy had been the car and well, that's your race over. Yeah. So, and through no fault of their own, the rest of the team had done a great job. And um, I mean, I guess the same goes with the pit crew because there are certain mistakes you can make in the pit lane that get you disqualified from the race. So mm. if oh, you yeah. drive the car in and then they, you know, an unsafe release, and then you get black flagged, you're out of the race mm. because your pit crew made a mistake. So I mean, I guess there's also that element. Too. Like it's anybody could cost you. Yeah, I guess so. Eh? Could cost you that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. My uh, entire exposure to endurance racing is Ford versus Ferrari, the movie, which was quite good. I thought very good movie. Um, yeah, but yeah, that was that was a that was a solid one. I'd I'd be interested uh, to hear like other people's takes on that question because I feel like you could take it in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, that's it for for this intro anyway um people won't know by now because there's only the two of us talking but we do have a guest today um which was a really really great conversation but we were pressed for time on that day so um, we only recorded the meat of the episode doing the intro and outro separately um so yeah on to the on to the episode i hope everyone enjoys So we're welcoming Andrew Hoff onto the show, uh, head strength coach at all our alma maters, I think, at the University of Waterloo. So mm-hmm. kind of nice to have this Waterloo crew together for this episode. So um, Hoff, why don't you just take a couple minutes, maybe tell us how you got into coaching, what made you get into coaching and how you've ended up where you're where you're at right now. Well, first, thanks for having me on. I, I think it's awesome as two alumni you guys are doing this initiative and the, some of the guests that you guys have had on before i i have some some big shoes to fill so um thank you guys for having me on and thank you both for i would say playing a big role in, in you know even prior to me getting this role starting to build momentum in the strength conditioning world here at waterloo um yeah like my i guess my origin story if you will like if if you can't play coach, <laughs> that was the sort of thing. So I, I grew up um, in Cambridge, Ontario. Um, you, you can't tell through this video and through this audio, but I'm not the biggest guy in the world, uh, whopping five foot eight. So when I was growing up, 
Um, I was, you know, often cut from a lot of hockey teams um, because of my size. I, I just wasn't the biggest kid. So um, I remember numerous times, especially, you know, probably when you start to hit 13 years old and I thought I had the talent, I thought I had the skill, um, but I just wasn't big enough. And at that point in hockey, size spoke volumes. So I didn't know how to digest that. So you come home and I, you know, and a lot of times in tears, not knowing what that meant, my, my mom and dad would say bigger, bigger, stronger, stronger, faster, faster, like control what you can control. So that, that started to lead me down the path of thinking about what could I do to give myself the best possible chance to be bigger, bigger, stronger, stronger, faster, faster. Um, and at 13, even younger years old, I didn't know what that meant. You know, my dad would take me over to the police station. My, my dad was the operations manager for the Waterloo Regional Police. And we'd be able to go over and, and use the gym a little bit there and not knowing what the heck I was doing, um, running the hills, you know, putting the car in neutral and putting my rollerblades on and pushing the car around our cul-de-sac, um, like stupid, stupid stuff. But it got me to the mindset of, you know, what can I do to give my body the best possible chance to, to um, succeed? So I um, played multiple sports in high school, um, loved the, the just playing a lot of sports. Um, I, I played four years of junior D, junior C hockey, not, not a crazy level, but I, I still have aspirations of playing collegiate hockey, um, which was actually why I came to Waterloo. <laughs> it was because I quasi got recruited to play here. Um, so came full intention of playing varsity, um, new coach came on, um, who probably knew a thing or two more about hockey and decided they wanted to get some better hockey players and started to get some OHL players. So all good. Didn't, didn't play varsity here, but really still had a crazy intense passion for training, um, for understanding the, the nuance and, and mechanisms in which one adapts to the training process. Um, so started to di- take a deep, deep dive into physiology, um, uh, predominantly physiology, muscle physiology, um, got to a point where I was in my fourth year, not knowing really what I wanted to do. I was doing some personal training with, you know, st- you know, stay at home parents and, um, people who needed that type of support, um, within the water of the region still hadn't really got my feet wet in the hockey world or the strength conditioning world per se. Um, started my master's um, with the mindset that I was going to pursue my PhD and become a professor because I, I, you know, worked hard and was pretty good academically. But um, during that time, like, yeah, I need to diversify my portfolio a little bit. So I started to volunteer with the men's hockey team as their strength coach um, without any strength conditioning experience. So the Brian Burke is the, was our associate athletic director here was you know kind enough. I guess he saw some passion in me and, um, let me do it, but I started to do some, you know, video with them. I was doing power play cutting. I was doing anything and everything I could do to be a contributing member to that team. Um, and it was during that time. I'm like, no, this, this is 100% what I want to do. I want to be a strength coach. Um, so I just started to put myself out there. I started volunteering with some hockey camps. Um, I kept doing, uh, I thought it was a really good job with the men's hockey team here. Um, it was hard because at that time, like I, I knew for sure, I didn't want to pursue academia. So it's just, it was a matter of, Hey, doing a really good job with my master's, which ended up being an awesome experience in terms of understanding the detail and the nuance of research and how 
um, finding ways to keep your, your methodologies in a testing world um, reliable and, and, and valid in, in what it means to collecting data um, in, in a you know, multi-sport environment and how important that would be. So I, I took a ton of skills from that. Um, so after I finished my master's, um, I, I ended up starting my own business out of the back of my van. Um, at that time I was fortunate enough. So I, there was a, a guest speaker that was sick one day or something like that, um, for a OHL event and they needed someone to come talk on nutrition. Um, so at that point I, I obviously took a deep dive into physiology. I'd worked at a nutrition store that has since the whole corporation actually closed. Um, so I worked there for five years selling supplements and again, fortunate there cause I could study while working essentially cause it was part of the job. Um, so when I did the speaking event, I got, um, someone was there who was, a uh, Andy Brown, who's the athletic therapist for the Owen Sound attack was there. And he's like, Hey, you ever thought about being a strength coach in the OHL? And I'm like, uh, yes, <laughs> I would love that. Um, so, met with the Dale DeGray, who's, who's still the GM in Owen Sound. Uh, and that was, I guess now we're dating back to 2010. Um, got the job. Um, I was by no means, like I had my CSCS, I had my master's, but I was a, I was a bad strength coach. Like I did not, I, I did not know what I was doing. Technically, I wasn't that great. Um, I had a lot of passion. That's for sure. And I was, I would say I, I fit well in the dressing room. Um, but that first year we won the OHL championship, um, which, you know, probably poorly founded some confidence and some street cred for me. And then kind of that, that gave me some other opportunities to volunteer, to start with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, the, the business kept growing. The only side of tax stuff kept growing. Um, fast forward to 2016, um, where the, uh, had a phone call with, with Brian Bork, our associate AD here at Waterloo. And he's like, Hey, we have this opportunity coming up. Would you be interested? Um, I said, yeah, yeah, I think, I think I would, you know, I, the, the collegiate experience had always be, been, uh, something I wanted to pursue. Um, I didn't have experience growing a collegiate program, but I had experienced growing a, a, a business and um, I wanted to come in and build a curriculum and a culture and a mindset. And to be able to do that at my alma mater was going to be a pretty awesome experience. So I'm fortunate enough to get the opportunity to do that. Originally the position was only supposed to be for five teams. Um, it's since then grown to six teams plus consulting for um, our other tier two sports, plus having a student coach program, plus teaching soon. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredible to, uh, I feel very, very fortunate. Yes. I've worked very hard, so I don't, you know, I don't want to say lucky. I think I've worked hard, hard for it, but I feel very fortunate that we continue to have impact um, on a daily basis. Um, and I feel lucky as well that, um, now going in my fourth year, it's kind of a, a part-time job, but like a, my fourth year being able to consult with the St. Louis blues as their development strength coach. Um, so I have the opportunity to go down to St. Louis. Um, usually it's twice a year. Um, I get to go down and be there for four to five days and work with our um, director of performance, Ryan Padel, um, work with our prospects who are recently drafted and help be a, a resource for them in their journey to chase their dreams. So I think I've really found my, my niche. I, I have no desire to be at the pro level. 
um, in terms of full-time, like where I am right now dealing with development or developing athletes who are chasing their dreams at the collegiate level. And, and there is, I've, I've found where I want to be. So that's, that's, I guess the story. And it comes down to, I've been doing it now since I was, you know, on it, like not on and off, just purely on for now the better part of 18 years. Um, since I was, you know, 18, 19, working at soccer camps and hockey camps doing their dry land. Um, and I, I'm as passionate or maybe even more passionate than I was on day one. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing your story for sure. Um, we'll get into some other stuff at some point, but first I think that's a great takeaway for any, you know, young aspiring strength coaches just to, um, well, a find what you're passionate about and just follow that. Um, and B, just kind of like get out there and get experiences and volunteer and put yourself out there and, and learn on the job. And, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but you learn from it and then eventually be able to help more and more people from it. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's the one thing that helped me along the way. Like I, I had a conversation with someone yesterday about the, the idea of being a, being a good fit, having the capabilities, like being capable being reliable, being dependent, um, and then continuing to, you know, be passionate about what you do. And, um, I think if you're looking at, see guys, um, if you're looking at building out your skill sets, you have to build a network of people that are championing you as a resource for them. Because if you have a, if you have a large network of people that are, you know, screaming on a mountaintop for you, then good chances you're going to have, you know, you're not going to have employment worries down the road. That's right. And um, yeah, so we were talking a little bit before you alluded to just now about how like it's a big, a big job and it's just you and, you know, um, it was supposed to only be five in, you know, perfect world five is a lot of teams anyway, for one person to be responsible for. And then it's grown since then. So um we wanted to talk to you about like, how can you manage so many teams, so many athletes, so many different sports and still uh, service them to the highest level possible um, as you were alluding to. Um, so yeah, I guess like what's, what's your first step, first approach or when you got there, like how do you, hmm. how do you start uh, tackling that problem? Yeah, I think, I think the first, the first step is to structure a coaching schedule in a way that allows you to have as much opportunity to build relationships as possible. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, at the beginning of the year, you know, my hope is that I get to see all of our athletes, you know, reality is our, our third, fourth, fifth year players are probably going to be getting more sport competition time than our first, second year players. So our first, second year players in season might train, you know, I call it 3.5 times per week. And our players that are getting more competition time are probably training two to 2.5 times per week. Um, so set up the schedule in such a way that you get to have as much, maybe not one-on-one -on -one time because that's not feasible with 230 athletes, but as much interaction time with the athletes as possible. What that allows me to do is to build really, really good relationships with them. Um, so that ultimately we have such a good rapport that they, they trust me that I'm going to make the best decision possible for them. And that I can make sure that their time in here is the best part of their day. 
that's, that's at a super high level. And when I talk about the culture and, and the experience that I want our students to have when leaving here, I want them to be able to go out and absolutely love their time in the gym so that they care about their bodies and they, they have a curriculum that they can lean on for the rest of their lives. Cause they're not always going to have a strength coach. Um, and then I'm, I'm guessing your, your question is really getting to, you know, how do you, how do you program and facilitate a, a strength conditioning system that adheres to best practices. Um, and, and that, that is, that is a tricky thing to do for sure. And I think what I come back to is developing a curriculum, um, and educating our athletes on the curriculum and that there's a, a thoughtful and evidence-based progression system and regression system to what we do. Um, we have invested in a, uh, online software that allows me as a coach to deliver those programs and make adjustments in real time um, and also allow things to be tracked in a, uh, in a proper way. So essentially how I go about programming here at Waterloo is number one, before our athletes even get to campus, we have a 16 to 20 week build up program that is purely curriculum driven. So what do I want those athletes, what skill sets do I want them to be able to execute before they even get to campus? So can they, can they squat bilaterally properly? Can they split squat properly? Can they lunge properly? Can they do a push-up properly? Can they overhead press properly? Can they horizontal roll properly? Can they vertical roll properly? Um, do they know how to, do they know what a, uh, a skip is? Do they know what a power skip is? Do they know what a shuffle is? Do they know what um, a jump compared to a hop compared to a bound is. And if we can get that in place number before they even get to campus, then that's going to set us up really well to move forward. What I then do is, um, you know, if, if we're calling it starting in September, the reality is we're in in-season programs. We're going to keep things really, really simple. Um, predominantly we're going to make sure we're doing things that are mitigating strength losses. Um, so and but at the same time, not overwhelming the nervous and muscular system in a way that could create some um, negative impacts or risk of injury down the road. So we'll, we'll keep it simple for the most part during the competitive season. Um, once we hit December, we might use December when it's exam time, we don't have competition to, introduce if we do want to you know introduce some new patterns um for the second half of the year we'll use december to really teach those and then come the summertime or the quote-unquote off season is when we'll really look to say okay we'll start to get more sport specific and go from more of a general to specific sort of thing um with each of our sports um, so we'll start with you know general um strength accumulation block and, and progressively get more intense and more specific to the patterns, to the um, level of activation, the um, planes in which the athletes move and more the, the level of um, execution that our sport coaches are going to ask of our athletes before they hit training camp. So that when they hit training camp, there's, you know, their bodies aren't thrown into a situation where they're being exposed to a, you know, an activity or level of activity or duration activity that they're not prepared for. So. I really like that idea about the, the incoming program where you talked about that 16, 20 weeks to build people into, 
into it. And I've heard the similar idea from a clinician who actually was talking about, well, regardless of somebody I'm coming in to treat, I need them to be able to do A, B, and C. Because if they can't do that, well, that's the first thing I'm going to do with them. So they've actually implemented a little bit of that program. So that way, anyone who wants to come see them in the clinic, they take care of A, B, and C first on their own. They learn about some of the stuff and then they spend spend time with them in the clinic. So that way they're not effectively wasting that person's time with stuff that they they need to do. So I really like that idea. I've never thought about how it could be applied in a an SNC context, but that's a really, really great idea on, hey, like you said, 230 athletes, who knows how many are coming in every year that are being recruited. If you can be competent with these things before you get here, that's going to make everyone's experience a lot better than it than it would have been if you have to try to do that with a large group of people at the start of the year. Yeah. Yeah, It's when you're dealing with this many athletes, it's, it really is about finding a way to, and I go back and forth, right? Like as a strength coach, you know, you you always want to be the facilitator. You want to do that. But what I've come to learn is like our, our role should almost be to try to make athletes as autonomous as possible so they can drive culture. And that you can be there to make sure that, you know, the the culture and the whole program is staying on the road that you want. And then if an athlete veers off the road, then you can pull them back in. But the more you can get people speaking the same language, they understand the the terminology um, and and the verbiage that goes into strength conditioning. Now you're not taking, you know, 15 minutes at the beginning of the session and explaining absolutely everything. It's like, here's what we're doing. Questions? No, go. And then you're spending more time coaching and building relationships rather than, you know, being a, a police officer at a, you know, a, a, a intersection with the lights out trying to make sure everyone's going the proper way. So I think that's what's allowed us to, it, it's not perfect by any means. Cause if you're here at seven o'clock this morning, I was acting like a police officer, but like, it's the, the goal. My mindset is to get to a point where the kids know what is expected and I have very, very high expectations. Um, and then I can be flexible enough to build relationships that allow me to actually coach rather than just being a facilitator. Yeah, that's super, super valuable. And like, I like what you said at the beginning too, about building the relationships is like, I think that's arguably the most important thing you can do as a coach. Like everyone's heard the, the saying, like, nobody cares what you know until they, they know that you care. Um, and you know, you have so much more impact and that just speaks to like people enjoying their time in the gym, enjoying their time with you. And, um, if they understand what they're doing, then it's so much easier for them to put the intent into the the movements that you want them to have as well and take ownership over the program and ownership over like helping their fellow teammates along and all those sorts of things. And it just, yeah, it fosters a, an incredible culture. And, um, and especially for the, the new kids, like the, the rookies coming in, you know, that's what takes the most time I would imagine anyway, is getting them up to speed. And if you can do that all before they even get to campus, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's, I would say going back to the, you know, show how much you care before how much, you know, sort of thing. Like I think as a, cause I, I'm, I'm guessing there's a young, a lot of young aspiring practitioners that, that would be listening to this call. And I think it's very like, yes, absolutely. Don't, don't get caught just caring more than what you're capable of though. Right. Like if you're, if you're cash and checks that your, your uh, experience and your skill sets can't, uh, can't pay for, then that's not a good situation. Right. 
And I think that's, I was fortunate enough because when I started, um, although I had my master's and I had my CSCS, I was not, I was not a technically really good strength coach. I cared a lot, but it, I made a lot of mistakes along the way because of that. So it's that fine balance between like, yeah, like, you know, express your passion, care to the cows come home, but continue to work on your capabilities. Because if, if you don't, then there's that, there's that imbalance. Um, so I guess <clears throat> getting a little bit more detailed or how detailed are you able to get then with uh, the programs or how much um, autonomy do you give the athletes into like choosing the stuff that they want to be doing um, just with a big program, so many athletes, so many teams, even if it's just one team, but a, like a big team, like football, um, it's cha- a challenges, individualizing programs and, and giving the specific athletes, what do they need? Um, and even figuring out what they need. The assessment piece is hard in, in a large group like that as well. So hundred percent. So I would say, um, and, and there's a couple different situations here on campus. So, and I would say this is probably the same across the entire youth sport landscape is that uh, we have a lot of athletes that come in who may have one to two years true strength conditioning experience. And then we have some athletes um, more so our hockey athletes or our men's hockey athletes who might have six to eight years strength conditioning experience. So my, and I acknowledge that I know that. So I guess first and foremost is know how much experience and the, the, the capabilities the athletes have coming in to, to do things in the gym um, and try to not pad their egos, but, you know, give them a little bit of space to, you know, express their confidence and their abilities. Um, I would say that um, freedom is earned. Um, so again, my hope is by the time someone's in their fourth or fifth year, they're actually part of the decision-making process with me in terms of what they're going to do. Um, because again, when they graduate from here, um, unless they're turning pro, they're not going to have a strength coach on their own. So I want them by the time they're graduating, we're kind of talking about things together. So what I do in general is I, I build a kind of a master framework, say, here's how I want the program to do. Here are the major attributes that I want to, um, you know, create adaptation for. And then I start to look at our, our assessment model to make decisions that um, best achieve those attributes. So for example, um, if we're looking at across the board, if we're saying, hey, a counter movement jump is a very important um, tool to assess one's power development abilities. Now, optimizing that jump ability can come from multiple different ways. And we'll use the force plates to, to achieve, like what's the best route for this athlete to get, um, to optimize their performance. So, um, so we'll take a step back before we even start talking about that is like, okay, can the athlete squat properly? Can they hinge properly? Can they lift properly? Can they, do they have the ability to, um, have, um, the capabilities to implement the curriculum of strength conditioning? then they can, they actually express a certain level of capacity. And then once they kind of check those two boxes in the general strength conditioning curriculum, then we'll look at 
the, the, what, you know, everyone says KPIs as a key performance indicator, but what if we looked at it, like what's a key performance inhibitor? Like what's inhibiting them from optimizing their performance? So that's where we'll look at um, their data to say, okay, um, are you going to be a um, athlete that needs more peak force um, work in your program? Are you an athlete that needs more rate of force development work? Are you an athlete that needs more impulse work um, in your programming to maximize your um, power production abilities and then make decisions along the way with that? So we'll have the master framework. Hey, if you can't execute a front squat really, really well, you know, whatever body weight for five reps, that's on the low end spectrum, but, um, that's priority number one. And then once we check that box, you have a really, really strong foundation of strength. You have a really strong foundation of, uh, locomotive abilities. Then we'll start to talk about, okay, what's inhibiting you from really maximizing your performance. Um, and I would say for a lot of our athletes, like those conversations don't happen till third or fourth year. Um, so that allows me to, um, I, I guess, scale the program uh, without it being overwhelming because it's, it's not feasible to write 230 individualized programs. But if you have a framework in place, then you can make the necessary progressions, regressions, lateralizations based on what's going to be best for that athlete. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, you know, to especially to build the base, like the movement base, and then, yeah, the general strength base, general work capacity base, and then getting into the things that would be more, um, I guess I think of it like athletic specific, like what does that athlete need to be a better athlete? And then eventually what does that athlete need to be a better athlete in their sport? You know, yeah. um, I like the, the idea too about like, performance inhibitors um i've heard a lot of people talk about like the low hanging fruit um what's the the thing yeah that's like the lowest easiest to improve that's going to give you the biggest bang for their buck to um you know and and having that those key performance indicators as like this is a measure of performance that we we want to improve or an adaptation we're going after um and then what is in the way of that i, I like that thought process for sure and i think what's also important is that you know, going back to the, the data collection and the, the evaluation processes, again, like I don't view the uh, data collection process as a means to um, just collect data and evaluate post hoc. Like I want to use my data as a teaching tool all the time. So when we're going into a new training block and, and I'm asking someone to do whatever, a banded counter movement jump or a catapult jump, like whatever it is, like I want to be able to use that athlete's testing data relative to where I ultimately want them to be to help reinforce, this is why we're doing this. And this is why when I ask you to execute something a certain way, here's exactly why I want, this is why we're doing it. Um, so I use that as much as possible. And I think that's, you know, part of the idea of getting as much um, the, the culture, the systems in place so that you can have those conversations as often as possible. One thing I'd love to ask you, I really like that idea. And I think, you know, 
one of the things, like they're all university athletes, as much as they're playing different sports and this and that, like you said, a lot of them probably don't have a huge training age in the weight room. They're all dealing with university stress. They're all dealing with chaotic schedules and all, there's probably a lot more of them that are in a similar situation than a, a different situation. Um, but always one, you know, group of people you have to have conversations with are the, the sport coaches. So you work with a lot of different sport coaches who are focused on their particular sport. So I think what'd be great to hear for young strength coaches is how do you navigate those conversations in a, in a situation where, where you're in, you're working for a number of teams. It's a lot easier if you're one strength coach working for one particular team to make it quote unquote sports specific or address exactly what they need much more of a challenge in your scenario. And you've obviously done a good job over the last four years of having those conversations with, with the program you've been building. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good question. I'll try to be as candid and, and um, open as I can with this. So I, I would say when I, when I first came in, um, I, I didn't, like I did a good job, but I, 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 if I were to do it all over again, I would say I would be um, more vulnerable and I would be more um, less ego driven. You know, I came in, I'm like, I'm an OHL strength coach and I knew this and I knew that. And I think it, 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 it um, didn't open my mind to the, the um, value and the information experience that sport coaches can give us as strength coaches. So Again, like I, I, if I were to do all over again, we've done a good job. I have very good relationships with our sport coaches. Um, but how, how we go about it is to have, we're all busy first off. Like it's, you know, the, the last thing you want is, you know, a year goes by and you have one conversation with a sport coach and you see him, you know, again in a year. Like, um, so what we try to do, obviously we're, we're dealing with a lot of teams. Um, we, you know, we're, we're at a spot in Waterloo where we're going to, you know, be able to facilitate this in a, you know, a space that, is, you know, our space for a certain period of time. And so we're going to have our strength conditioning hours throughout the day that unfortunately probably won't be in conjunction with practice times. And that's probably a conversation for a different day, but, um, how we go about it is I meet with the sport coaches at least once a week, um, say, Hey, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? Like, it's not going to, I'm not going to make a left or right turn in our curriculum or our programming because the sport coach says, Hey, this person needs to be more reactive and just flip them to that program. Like it, it needs to come back to best practices and, and proper progression. Um, but it's just having ongoing conversations. I think it's also being a student of sport so that, um, and I always say for me, the, the sport I need to grow with the most is probably basketball. Um, and learning language of sport, but I, I watch the sport and I learn the sport and I, I try to develop a language for the sport um, so that a, when a coach says something to me where a player is limiting, um, obviously I can't control skill in sport, but if they're limiting their ability to, you know, be strong, be strong in the post or, you know, they're, they're having a hard time um, cutting or opening up, like those are things that we can control. So, and then, and then do the thing that they're asking, you know, if I can implement in a strength nation world, if I can implement some new skill sets and then follow up with them. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, your question was, how do you navigate it with the sport coaches? And it, it's being um, 
coming at it, understanding that the sport coach is an expert in their sport. Um, not all of them. Some of them are, have a really, really good background in strength conditioning. Um, but go into it as a student thinking, what can I learn from this sport coach? Not, not come at it like, Hey, this is the strength conditioning program. This is what we're doing. Blah, 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 blah. Like they're experts in their sport. They know what elite performance is in their sport. You're an expert in strength and conditioning. So how do we combine those minds together to be speaking the same language and optimizing the student athlete experience? So at the end of the day, we're here for the athletes. Like that's both, both parties are here for the athletes. So how do we work together so that we're doing what's best for them long-term? Um, and then also I would say, um, you know, find, find, I think every athlete likes to know that they're doing things that are, um, progressively working towards specifically improving their ability to, um, have higher capabilities and capacity in their sport. So I, I'm trying to stay away from the sport specific terminology a little bit. Um, I'm okay with that. (laughs) <laughs> but it, but it also, but it also leads to compliance, um, and buy-in with the program. So like, again, if, if you can, let's say with our, our basketball players right now, and we're some, we're doing rotational hides and, and then we're transitioning into a, a shuffle you know, to, a open up another shuffle to a sprint. Like, again, it's, it's an agility drill, but it's basketball mind. Um, and I think they appreciate that and you're going to get a little bit of buy-in too. So you know, trying to find opportunities to make things more sport related as you get closer to the season um, is, is a good way to not so much with the sport coach, but with the, the sport specific athletes um, to get more buy-in with them. Yeah. I think that's great. Great things to say to, like I said, if there's younger coaches listening or people that are in the same situation as you where, Hey, I'm one coach and I got a lot of teams that I'm working with. Uh, how to navigate that and, and some of the some of the lessons they can learn from you. I think that's that's great advice to to share with everyone. Yeah, I think I think too just helpful going into any conversation with you know any coach or a parent or you know an athlete um, that yeah they know themselves they know their sport they know their you know child or or whatever like they always have expertise that you don't have and the more you can go into it thinking like with a student mindset, trying to learn, trying to um, gain information to better help the person that you're working with um, a, you'll, you will be able to help them better. And then B, I think it gives the other people more license to um, bring that same mindset instead of, you know, if you come in with an ego, then they're going to show their ego and then you're just butting heads the entire time and nobody gets anywhere. But if you know, you want to learn, then maybe they want to learn from you. And, and then there's a lot more yeah. room to work together. I think it's, it's really, it's really, really hard because when you're a young strength coach and you're not fully confident in your systems, in your philosophy and your abilities, you're, I guess you're, you're trying to build your ego and your confidence in yourself. So you're, you're probably in hindsight, having conversations that you look back and oh, I could have, I should have done that differently. I, like I, you know, I, I was protecting my ego there. I was, you know, blurting out information and not listening. And it's, it's taken, it's taken me 15 years to, and I, I still have moments where I, um, you know, I, I, I do get defensive or I do, it's like, hold on a second. No, no, no. Like, 
you know, if you go into it with the common goal of every, you're just trying to help the athlete, you're just trying to help, you're just trying to learn from each other and create the best possible experience. Um, and if you're doing that with a parent, if you're doing that with a coach, if you're doing that with an athlete, then I think you're coming at it from a, from a really good mindset. Um, I'm interested too, in like, uh, the way that you, uh, help teach, I guess the, or, well, first, actually, I'm interested in the, the assessment piece. Cause you said the, the data collection helps inform the way that you teach, uh, the athletes and how to, how they need to progress and things like that. So, um, what does your assessment piece or like the testing, uh, monitoring all that sort of stuff that you do, what does that look like? Sure. So we, we will do our, our major assessment process uh, three to four times a year. Um, across the board, our, we'll have a measure of, so we'll do force plate counter movement jump. Um, and we'll use that uh, as a metric to explore vertical power development. And then the, you know, the other variables that, that come or metrics that come from that assessment. Um, all of our sports will do a broad jump, standing long jump. Uh, we'll then do a measure of acceleration. So we'll do a 15 meter sprint. Um, we will then do uh, a chin up test to a metronome at 30 beats per minute. So 13 reps per minute. Um, for some athletes, that will be a max upper body strength test. For other athletes, that'll be a strength endurance test. Um, we'll then, uh, do some sort of movement evaluation, um, in conjunction with our therapy team here at Waterloo. Um, so that'll include, you know, versions of, um, some, some mobility screening, um, we'll do things in a dynamic world. So we'll film video, the, the counter movement jump on the force plate, um, and then compare that information back to left to right, um, asymmetries. Um, we'll then do um, probably some sort of sports-specific uh, physical capacity evaluation. Um, so, for example, in hockey, we'll do a, a goal line to blue line sprint, and we'll measure um, acceleration and velocity profiling. Um, well, then we'll do our conditioning on the ice, and then we'll do same with uh, our court sports is we'll do our conditioning tests uh, on court and then do that throughout the year. We'll then also do um, force plate testing weekly um, during the competitive season. Um, and then we'll, we'll be doing uh, chin-up testing bi-weekly just as one of their sets um, in their program. And, and we do that so that, again, we're just continually having conversations to say, hey, like, you know, this matters and we're going to measure what matters. And we're going to use that as teaching tools to say, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, we A, don't want to see decrements throughout the year, that's for sure. Um, if we have opportunity to progress a certain metric, then we'll find avenues to do that and just reinforce everything is to reinforce training habits. Um, that's again, I, at the end of the day, if, if someone has crappy training habits, like that's priority number one for me, not, not getting their counter movement jump up by five centimeters is no, we're going to work on training habits. Um, and then try to use the data to reinforce, reinforce that. So, yeah, right. so it's, it's a matter of, of we, we collect things on a collegiate level 
Um, so again, our, that would be our, our force plate jumps our broad jump or sprint and our chin up. And then sports have a little bit of autonomy to decide if there is a metric or test that will inform the coach and inform the athlete, um, about, you know, what, you know, does a certain metric, uh, align with the system of play they want to be able to implement. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, um, I guess you, you were talking about using the data, you alluded to it a little bit there for sure. Um, in like a week to week kind of enforcing the training habits, this is why this is important. Um, how does that, like the bigger tests, the like three to four times a year tests feed into, um, like your curriculum and the overarching, um, like teaching the athlete what they need and how to work towards certain, uh, goals and things like that and feed into the autonomy piece. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what what we're experiencing is if an athlete um, implements a curriculum that adheres to best practices, um, does things in a safe way that uh, mitigates as much injury risk as possible, which means they can keep training because if they're injured, then they're going to have some significant amount of detraining, then we should see a, a certain level of progression in those metrics during their time here at Waterloo. Um, so that's, that's how those, if someone's here four years, those 12 to 16 time points serve to re- back reinforce the, the cur- curriculum that we want to instill. <clears throat> so I guess at the end of the day, like I, you know, obviously when we're in the gym, there's you know, rah, 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 when someone has a PR and stuff like that, but I, I'm really not interested in those massive PRs. <laughs> um, we're not we're not powerlifters for our sports. Um, I, I'm much more interested in if someone can uh, continually express a certain level of capacity in the movements that we're asking them. Um, but it, but if those movements aren't translating to performance improvements then, then we have to look back and say, okay, maybe this might not be the right stressor for this athlete um, and have an honest look at it. Cause at the end of the day, like, yes, I want everyone here to be able to express um, a capability in the curriculum that we have. But at some point we, we do need to have conversations of, is it actually translating into improved physical performance abilities? Because if it's not, then you're just getting good at the curriculum. So we need to really think about, is it actually making you better in sport? And that's, that's part of the, the high level um, collection of data, um, looking at program development. So I mean, not program, I mean, sport development, like is a sport program progressing in the way they should be? Um, and then if not, then it's just an honest look and say, okay, cool. Well, you know, we have to find a different, way to get you the result we want um yeah i really like that balanced approach there's input from the snc there's input from sport there's input from the clinicians and the therapy side and it's all coming together in like you said a like a a complete or a fuller uh assessment and look at how teams and athletes and sports and everything's progressing forward so I, i like the the collaborative piece of it's not just your strength testing people to see where they're at strength wise to say, Hey, look, they got stronger. My job is safe. It's a, 
it's a really collaborative approach. It sounds like, and I like that a lot. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Cause in, you know, as a strength coach, you want to know, like you're, you're having impacts with what you're doing. And a lot of times like, okay, well, if your deadlift went up 20 pounds, like I'm doing my job. Like, well, like, man, I'm not like, yes, I'm here because I want to, I want to be an advocate and a mentor for best practices and strength conditioning. I want to teach our student strength coaches how to be a reliable, a, a capable and dependent practitioner in this world of strength and therapy, but frig, I want to win. Like I want to, I want to win. Like there's like, there's nothing like <laughs> I want to be, I want to be at six national championships and I have to fly across the province or across the frigging country because I need to be at every one cheering our guy, our, our athletes on. Like that's, that's what I want. <laughs> no one like, who I, that, loves sport what, enjoys losing. Like yeah, you said, you, you got to love winning. That's not lost on me. Like, I, like, yes, I'm a strength coach for all the teams, but like when, when I go to a game and it's a playoff game and we lose, like I'm, I'm gutted. I'm absolutely gutted. And the kids know that. And I think that's the thing too, is like the kids, like they know I'm invested in, in sport and, um, like I'm, you can probably tell my voice I'm getting fired up now because like the, the competitive, it. it's it. coming, it's coming. Right. And you know, it's, uh, yeah, like it's, it's, a it, it's hard because as a strength coach, we don't have control in sport. Um, you know, and, and there's only, you know, so much that we can do, but, um, and, and at the end of the day, like I, I have conversations with people like that, you know, you have to be kind of stone cold and you have to just kind of come in and do your job and stay in your lane. And, but that's just not who I am. Like, I just can't, like, I, I have to, I have to be a, a cheerleader um, you know, and, and go in and my wife always chirps me cause I can't go and ever just watch a game. Like I, you know, obviously hockey's the, the sport that I'm most familiar with and I don't know the nuance of systems in volleyball and basketball, but, um, I can't just go and watch a game. Like I'm critiquing and I'm looking at, you know, stride angles. I'm looking at, you know, as an athlete opening up and making right decisions or are they making poor decisions because they're fatigued and, so unfortunately I can't just watch sport just to be a fan. <laughs> I think we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's obviously a really, really important piece as well. And I mean, arguably the most important, like the reason we're here is to help the teams win. Right. So um, if we didn't have an impact, then we wouldn't have jobs. Yeah. hundred um, percent. But, and it's, it's a super, super hard thing. I think anyway, to, to know that what you're doing is carrying over to the field or the court or the, the ice, you know, um, how do you, I guess, assess whether or not what you're doing is carrying over, um, to the sport? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, so, and, and we're still figuring this out and I, I, I know 100% there's, there's other institutions that, um, across all collegiate programs, probably they're doing a better job than we are right now. And we're, we're getting there. So what we've challenged our sport coaches to do is, is come up with, you can't just measure on wins and losses and you can't win base um, sustained development and um, you know, team fulfillment, I'll call it not team success just on winning championships. Cause only one, one team wins a championship every year. So that shouldn't be your indicator. Um, so what we've challenged our coaches to do is say, Hey, like what, what sport metrics, um, 
would you choose that best validate um, your team's system for success? Um, what individual metrics will you assign to sport players to say, hey, like you're performing better? Um, it's a huge task, and this is this is the world of sports science um, to do. So we're we're not we're not there yet, but um, so to challenge our coaches to come up with those things, report in on those things on a on a yearly basis, and to say, hey, look, hey, is our performance system working um, in 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 the specific sports, and and not just sports in the sport, but in the system that you want to implement for your sport. Um, so fi- yeah, finding metrics that validate your system of coaching. Um, so that's, that's how we're gonna, going to attempt to do that. That's a huge, huge job to be able, actually able to implement. Um, and then combine that with, you know, the SSC metrics and, you know, Hey, if we're physically getting, you know, if our performance metrics in the SSC world are getting a lot better, but our sport metrics aren't getting better then okay, well, maybe we have to have a conversation of, okay, you know, we've, we've really topped out on this bucket of strength conditioning. Like we're doing a really, really good job there. Do we need to look more at sports psych? Do we need to look more at um, skill development? Do we need to look more at, um, you know, the, the systems or tactical side of sport? And that's kind of, again, that's not my job right now to have those conversations with that, with sport coaches, but, Ultimately, that's what high performance is, is, again, finding out what is inhibiting your team's ability to win. Um, so that's, that's ultimately how we're going to aspire to, to look at this holistic approach. Um, but, but it takes a long time to get there. And it's, it's also an evolving conversation because um, recruits change, um, player personnel change, um, you know, your competitors change. So the metrics in which you use might change year over year, which is, which is then hard to evaluate program success longitudinally if you're only, you know, measuring things every two or three years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great way to approach the problem anyway. Um, yeah. Definitely, like it's a hard hard problem to solve and it, it takes time and years and a lot of experience to see that stuff. But um, yeah. asking the right questions is the first step anyway. Um, but anyway, I think that's, uh, that was a great chat. I know you got to go, so we'll, we won't take up any more of your time. Um, but thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, and before you go, is there anything you want to share or plug or point people to? Um, not really, not really. Like I, I'm, I'm just, I'm excited to the, for the development that we have going on here at Waterloo. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be implementing a strength conditioning course at an undergrad level and, and, you know, I have aspirations of creating a graduate stream that, that prospective students can come and do their master's work here and, and get some experiential based strength conditioning work. Um, so that, you know, when they leave, you know, they have a tremendous amount of experience, you know, technically in this world, but then also working directly with our sport coaches um, so that they can leave and, and continue to build this um what would i there's there's more momentum in canada now than i than there ever has been in the strength conditioning world i feel um there's more and more jobs becoming available um as strength conditioning practitioners so i i'm i'm just really really excited to be part of a network of of people at least across here in ontario that are that are trying to 
you know, make this thing a, a recognized, um, registered profession. So that's, that's, that's my plug is, uh, I love it, man. I love to see the water lose in a good place and that you're taking this program to, to new heights. I mean, that's awesome. Awesome to see. Um, especially I think from me and Braden both coming from being varsity athletes at the school and seeing, man, I would have, I would have loved to have stuff like this when I was, (laughs) when I was competing there. So, I mean, it's, it's awesome to see that Waterloo is, you know, taking steps forward and just continuing to climb to the climb to the top. So thanks for, you know, the time coming on today and sharing your ideas and, and knowledge with people. And, and thank you for doing a good job at uh, like personally at the school we went to yeah, and, awesome. you know, had a good time at, so really appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys. It's, it's always good. And I'm sure at some point there's going to be a part two. Oh, we'd love to have you back for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Once, once we get some of these things in place, then we'll, uh, we'll let you know how it's going. Yeah. All right. So perfect. All right. Thank, thanks for your time Hoff. Thanks guys. Okay. I'm going to chime out. Yep. And wouldn't be the speed strength show without capping it off with some music chats. Uh, and we thought it'd be fun today with it being a little Waterloo SNC reunion to talk about some of our favorite uh, pack music selections. Um, we choose pack specifically because we didn't uh, spend very much time at the CIF, generally speaking, anyway. Well, and the other thing too is the speaker wasn't super accessible there because the radio unit was actually in a different room. Yeah, played on mm-hmm. the speakers and in, in sip, so it wasn't the same where you could like choose the music like very easily. You had to walk to a mm-hmm. different room and change the music. So, and there also, and and with Pack, there was at one point anyway an option to hook up an iPod or a phone or something to the speaker, which I don't think we ever could do that in in SIF. No, and I mean eventually in Pack we didn't do that because I think there was enough profanity that littered the airwaves there that that privilege got taken away relatively quickly. Yes, yes, that's right. That's um but yeah i don't know for me man it was it was octane all the time i think i messed around with a little bit of other stuff but as soon as i found octane i was like oh this is what we need to be listening to yeah octane octane i think seemed to be the like the fan favorite in there i feel like most people Mm -hmm. were were happy if that was was on there i think even amongst most of the like uh the more senior staff that was like the accepted like default channel that was played um anytime i was working in there i was always an aussie's boneyard kind of guy um because i had more of the 70s 80s i feel like that's not yeah i feel like that's not too far away like it's a similar vibe anyway you can probably get away with one or the other um yeah but that was my go-to because I liked a little bit of the older 70s, 80s metal um, yeah. as where Octane was playing like the most recent stuff that was coming out. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and some of the stuff that uh, you were mentioning, um, man, what was that group you mentioned the other day that it did have like a bit of that like 70s feel? Oh, Volbeat. It's, it's new. Had like the old school Volbeat, that's right. mixed with Metallica. Kind yeah. Of yeah, Volbeat was popular on Octane. Volbeat was nice. Um, I liked Hailstorm. 
I liked Hailstorm oh, a lot. What a great band. Uh, there was man, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the names of all of them. That I like the songs. The songs come to me right away. Like I can hear them in my head, but I can't quite remember all the all the bands that were on there. There were so many. Yeah. Um but yeah, that was that was a good time. And then I remember we had a playlist when back when we could. Uh, I know exactly. Back when we could play with, with the phone, we had the you, me, and and Jake had a had a playlist that we would that we would go. Um, it had all our like PR songs on it too, and then the a lot of the Octane favorites and stuff. Yeah, and then how did we create that? Wasn't it like each of us put like brought ten songs to the table or whatever, and then that was the playlist, or like it was a combination of. Like, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. Toss it in. Okay, I like that. Toss it in. Yeah, I don't know if it was a set number, but I think I remember us like at your house, probably. probably yeah, that's where we hung out. Creating that. Time. Yeah. Probably yeah. over around the golf. Yeah, tea time. Yeah, tea time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that people genuinely thought we were going golfing in like January. Like, guys, we got to get out of here. We got tea time. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're just going home to play like PGA Tour 2016 or whatever it was in the PlayStation. Well, I mean, if it was mine, I think it was 2008, maybe. Oh, were you playing like a real old school one? I mean, I was terrible at it, so. If it was mine, I don't know. I'm I'm assuming it was mine, but yeah, big throwback. It was a good time. Yeah, I think you're right. It probably got made in my living room at the time, and we were just tossing tunes around, and next thing you know, the playlist was made, and yeah, we we threw that on quite a bit. Yeah, we did. We did. I remember... I don't remember again. I can't remember what the song was called, but I Jake had a specific one that he wanted to listen to, which I I thought was pretty good. I did enjoy, um, and he had like his knee wraps on while he was maxing out his leg press. I remember that day. Yeah. I remember that, and I'm pretty sure that leg press was. Uh, I think that was the first. I think the month before that was the first time I tried that like type two hypertrophy stuff. Yeah, it was, and it was right like around super then. heavy, and then the last rep was like designed to be so heavy that you failed yeah. but you failed to like three or four reps so he had like 900 pounds or whatever on the leg press he yeah. straps on his knee sleeves he goes into the office and blasts the tune and then yeah. he's trying to like just absolutely annihilate himself on the leg press i remember yeah. that and we were all like standing by on that <laughs> yeah, sled because like we don't need to pin and kill himself here with this thing so yeah yeah good yeah. music memories in that place man yeah, for sure it was a good time it was a good time Mm-hmm. did you have like uh like an all-time favorite like from that playlist like a favorite song from that playlist or or from ozzy's boneyard or from octane i feel like from all of them um i think ozzy's boneyard did it. there were a lot of bands i probably would have never heard of um without ozzy's boneyard queens right is probably the first one that pops into my mind Mm-hmm. progressive metal band from the 80s um definitely octane was the first place i heard the band ghost talked about ghost before kind of that poppy metal band okay uh that was my first exposure to ghost and then on the playlist that we created uh there was a song by uh, yellow wolf uh, let's go that's what it was mm. and that was i had never heard that song before i think that was jake who suggested we toss that on there Mm. And that tune's an absolute banger. So if you're asking me for like the favorites from that, those are of those different places I was listening. Those would be the three that immediately pop into my mind. Nice. Very nice. Um, yeah, for me, I think 
uh hailstorm the song that sticks out the most from octane was probably i miss the misery by hailstorm um yeah and on that playlist this was one of my contributions but um blood by in this moment was my well i mean i'm not hitting prs anytime soon but is will forever be my all-time pr song and like third deadlift out of meat song um for sure for sure gets me fired up um yeah good times man good times uh but yeah yeah we had a lot of time a lot of fun talking with hoff today or well i mean when we did talk to him but way back in this episode um and we apologize to hoff for us getting this out so late oh it's all good he he understands he he needed to record it early before he got uh trapped into the like the varsity season so that's true yeah um but yeah so yeah thanks to him again and hope everyone enjoyed it and we will look forward to having him back at some point um until then uh, if anybody has questions concerns comments let us know speed strength show speed strength performance or brayton southern on instagram or if you want to let us know your pr song is it's cool too yeah for sure always always looking for music suggestions especially me uh very music uh, <laughs> uh low music knowledge over here so if if someone has something that they think is good then let me know so i'll check it out and maybe maybe uh push it on the next episode um but yeah uh until then thanks for coming along world that was the speed strength show and we'll see you next time peace <laughs>